Now that David and the tribe of Judah is once again on the brink of war with their brethren Israel under the rebellion of Sheba, Joab decides to take matters into his own hands. This is the 44th sermon in the series Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, an exposition on the second book of Samuel. Our old covenant reading coming from 2 Samuel chapter 20. 2 Samuel and chapter 20, the entire text of that chapter, 2 Samuel and chapter 20. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes, And there happened to be there a man of Belial, whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew a trumpet and said, We have no part in David, neither have we inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So every man of Israel went up from after David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah clave unto their king from Jordan even to Jerusalem. And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten women, his concubines, whom he had left to keep the house, and put them in ward and fed them, but went not in unto them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living in widowhood. Then said the king to Amasa, Assemble me the men of Judah within three days, and be thou here present. So Amasa went to assemble the men of Judah, but he tarried longer than the set time which he had appointed him. And David said to Abishai, now shall Sheba, the son of Bichri, do us more harm than did Absalom. Take thou thy Lord's servants and pursue after him, lest he get him fenced cities and escape us. And they went out after him, Job's men, and the Cherethites, and the Pelethites, and all the mighty men. And they went out of Jerusalem to pursue after Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were at the great stone, which is in Gibeon, Amasa went before them. And Joab's garment that he had put on was girded unto him, and upon it a girdle with the sword fastened upon his loins and the sheet thereof. And as he went forth, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Art thou in health, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with the right hand to kiss him. But Amasa took no heed to the sword that was in Joab's hand. So he smote him therewith in the fifth rib and shed out his bowels to the ground and struck him not again. And he died. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued after Sheba, the son of Bichri. And one of Joab's men stood by him and said, He that favoreth Joab, and he that is for David, let him go after Joab. And Amasa wallowed in blood in the midst of the highway. And when the man saw that all the people stood still, he removed the Amasa out of the highway into the field and cast a cloth upon him. When he saw that every one that came by him stood still, when he was removed out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue after Sheba, the son of Bichri. And he went through all the tribes of Israel unto Abel and to Beth Malach and all the Berites, and they were gathered together and went also after him. And they came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Maccah, and they cast up a bank against the city, and it stood in the trench. And all the people that were with Joab battered the wall to throw it down. Then cried a wise woman out of the city, Hear, hear, say I, pray you unto Joab, Come near hither, that I may speak with thee. And when he was come near unto her, the woman said, Art thou Joab? And he answered, I am he. Then she said unto him, Hear the words of thine handmaid. And he answered, I do hear. Then she spake, saying, They were wont to speak in old times, saying, They shall surely ask counsel at Abel. And so they ended the matter. 
I am one of them that are peaceable and faithful in Israel. Thou seekest to destroy a city and a mother in Israel. Why wilt thou swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? And Joab answered and said, Far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. The matter is not so. But a man of Mount Ephraim, Sheba, the son of Bichri by name, hath lifted up his hand against the king, even against David. Deliver him only, and I will depart from the city. And the woman said unto Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to thee over the wall. Then the woman went unto all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and cast it out to Joab. And he blew a trumpet, and they retired from the city, every man to his tent. And Joab returned to Jerusalem unto the king. Now Joab was over all the host of Israel, and Benaiah the son of Jeadoah was over the Cherethites and over the Belethites. And Adoram was over the tribute, and Jehoshaphat the son of Aholad was recorder, and Sheba was scribe, and Zadok and Abathar were the priests, and Ira also the Jerite was a chief ruler about David. Mark records in Mark and chapter 14, Mark and chapter 14, verses 44 through 46, focusing on one particular verse. By the same Spirit, Mark recounts this, And he that betrayed him had given him a token, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same as he, take him and lead him away safely. And as soon as he was calm, he goes straightway to him and said, Master, Master, and kissed him. And they laid their hands on him and took him. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy and errant and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever. And by his holy word, once again, is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Now one would think that once the rebellion, Absalom's rebellion was frustrated, and Absalom, the leader of the rebellion, was killed, one would think that everything would return to normal. That would have been the right thing, the good thing. However, as with so many revolutions, there were always unintended consequences. Because Absalom's death, as we learned last time, created a vacuum within the tribe of Israel and and Judah. But it created much more. It created tension between these two tribes because of petty pride. And that's what happens when prideful men begin to contend with one another. A vacuum is created. Each tribe, if you remember, wanted to be highly esteemed above the other. It created a breach. This, this pettiness created a breach in any possible unification of the nation of Israel under David with both the tribes of Israel and the tribes of Judah. And so not being able to reconcile with the southern tribes of Judah, this vacuum was quickly filled by another rebellious individual, a man of Belial, a man of worthlessness named Sheba. Now, as we have already learned, apparently he was already an influential man with a substantial following of the tribe of Benjamin, which, if you remember also, is the same tribe that King Saul was from and where his sons also had their roots. So he wanted to reestablish the tribe of Benjamin as the kingly tribe over Israel. Now, recognizing that war was imminent, David sidelines Joab for whatever reason and chooses Amasa as his war chief. And, of course, that did not sit well with Joab. 
in order to prepare for what was coming, David then tells Amasa to assemble the army and meet back in three days because it was critical that he would meet back in three days. In order to prepare what was coming, he had to meet David back in three days. But for whatever reason, Amasa is delayed, so David commissions Joab's brother Abishai to begin the campaign. And we saw this in verses 5 through 6. Then said the king to Amasa, Assemble me the men of Judah within three days, and be thou here present. So Amasa went to assemble the men of Judah, but he tarried longer than the set time which he had appointed him. And David said to Abishai, because of the delay, now shall Sheba, the son of Bichri, have time, in other words, to establish fenced cities, and we're going to lose the advantage. And that was basically the situation there. Now, we're not told why Amasa tarried, but we did speculate that he was having some difficulty assembling the army. Maybe he wasn't as well noted as Joab, or for whatever reason, he had some difficulty. And this may be because he was not skilled as a war chief. This fact is hinted on later on when Amasa cannot even holster his weapon, poorly skilled, He cannot holster his weapon properly, which resulted in a very uncomfortable providence for him, and a deadly providence, in fact. Now, commissioning Abishai, Joab's brother, and in his own right, Abishai, a captain of David's army, was a wise move by David. He's not waiting for Amasa. He says, we have to move quickly. Let's get someone else who who is as skilled as Joab, and probably more skilled as far as he was determined at this point than Amasa. So David understood that timing, this is the point here, timing was essential in gaining an upper hand over the enemy and therefore he could not wait any longer for Amasa to return. In fact, at this point when Amasa was late, he didn't know if he'd return at all. So he had to move quickly because timing was critical. And that's the lesson for us this morning. When commissioned to accomplish a certain task like preaching the gospel, it must be done within the given time frame, otherwise the advantage will be lost. Timing is essential. God gives us time frames in which we are to dedicate ourselves in order to be productive. And this is true in life with everything. David did not want to miss his opportunity for the advantage. Timing was everything. Timing was critical. Solomon understood timing. In fact, maybe, maybe in reading the annals of Israel, he would look back at David and the situation with Amasa and he would say, you know what? That Amasa had to recognize timing was critical. And so he writes this in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1 and following. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. A time to be born, and a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up that which is planted. A time to kill, and a time to heal. A time to break down, and a time to build. A time to weep, and a time to laugh. A time to mourn, and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to get, and a time to lose. A time to keep, and a time to cast away, a time to rend and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. And so timing is critical. In fact, what Solomon is saying is that timing is connected to a purpose. 
And this is why he says, a time to every purpose under heaven. So whenever there is a purpose to be executed, it must be done within a precise time frame. Remember that that kind of little cute little story about that commercial when there's a lovely couple sitting at the table and the girl says to the man, sweetheart, I love you. And he sits there stone cold, face, no expression. And she's getting perturbed and she finally gets so angry, she gets up, she throws her napkin down on the table and she leaves. And the man says, oh honey, I love you too. Timing, timing, timing is everything. Let me give you some examples. When we are young, our purpose is to learn some of life's basics. So you young people, when and while you are young, it is time for you to learn life's basics. And so the purpose for learning should be done during the time of our early years of life keeping consistent with his declaration of Ecclesiastes 3. Solomon also says this in Proverbs 22.6, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. So during the child's young age period of life, training must be diligent. Now Solomon obviously took these counsels from the law of God, as given by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Notice, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart. We are to teach our children to love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our might. And then he says this, Thou shalt teach the children diligently and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house and when thou walkest by the way and when thou liest down and when thou risest up. The children should be taught while they're young, while they're young, while they're impressionable. Guided, directed, chastised when necessary, rewarded when that is the time. Because timing is everything. Moses tells Israel that the purpose for the parent is to teach and lay up for the children while the time frame in which that teaching should take place is during the time of the child's early years. You cannot wait to teach the child after they're already grown. It doesn't work that way. It's not the way of the world that God has created and crafted. And so purpose and timing go together. Solomon uses the example of farming, comforting, warfare, peacetime. He also speaks of a time when we gather stones and a time when we cast those stones away. This can all be associated with a number of things. In the area of knowledge, we gather knowledge in our younger years in order to give away our knowledge by teaching later on. So we gather and then we give it away. We gather stones cast them away. In the area of economics, in our younger years, we work. We are paid for our work, we build wealth, and then when we are older, because we have gathered that wealth, we give away our wealth. We give away by investing in purposeful endeavors. We give away our wealth to the sport of our children and to the work of the kingdom, to build the kingdom. And this principle can even be applied to the raising of children. When we are young, we have children, not when we're old and we're tired. We teach them to be productive adults in the world and in the work of advancing the kingdom. Then when they are older, when the time is right, we send them into the world to accomplish what they have been taught to accomplish. Once again, timing is everything. 
You cannot just say to yourself, well, it'll all work out, because it doesn't all work out. We need to be very particular in our training of our children and in the things that we do, how we are directing our lives. So timing is everything. Proper timing can be the difference between being blessed and being miserable. For David, it was very important timing was. It was the difference between victory and defeat. Now, once Abishai heads out into the battle, Joab's men follow, accompanied by the Cherethites and the Pelethites. Once they reach the great stone of Gibeon, Amasa goes ahead. Obviously, by this time, Amasa had caught up with the army. However, at this point, wearing the general's uniform that Joab had to relinquish to him, because now he was the general and Joab was not, and having his sword girded upon his loins, Sadly, not properly, Amasa's sword falls out. Falls out of his sheath. And we read this in verse 8. And when they were at the great stone, which is at Gibeon, Amasa went before them, and Job's garment that he had put on was girded unto him, and upon it a girdle with a sword fastened upon his loins, and the sheath thereof. And as he went forth, it fell out. Now, as we already have surmised, the man was most probably unprepared for battle. Now, if you remember... David, when just a youth, David rejected Saul's armor since he had not had the time to prove it. Maybe Amasa did not have time to prove that armor as well. David could not be comfortable with something that he was not tested with. It wasn't tested, he couldn't test it, and that, for him, rightly so, meant the difference between life and death. Amasa obviously failed to prove his own weaponry. Joab notices this and asks if the man is okay. And of course, you know, if you know anything now about Joab, say, oh, are you okay, my brother? You can't even hold your sword right. But note his concern is deceptive and calculated. And Joab said to Amasa, art thou in health, my brother? My brother. It's like when someone comes up to you and pat you on the back and says, hey, my brother, but they're really looking for that soft place in your back to put the knife. I am well aware of that practice. And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand, just picture this, with his right hand by the beard, pulling his beard down, to kiss him. But Amasa took no heed to the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab employs what is commonly known as the Judas kiss. A kiss which on the outside looks like a harmless symbol of love and reconciliation, but in actuality it is the kiss of death. No, Joab's right hand takes a massa by the beard while in his left hand he holds the sword. Which tends us to think that Joab is a lefty. A southpaw, it's called. Much like our hero in the book of the Judges, Ehud, and the children of Benjamin that could actually sling stones with their left hand precisely to the target without missing. And we read this in Judges chapter 20, beginning in verse 14. But the children of Benjamin, and remember, this was something that many of the Israelites and those of Judah were training in. They were, a lot of them were lefty. Gathered themselves together out of the cities unto Gibeah 
to go out to battle against the children of Israel, and the children of Benjamin were numbered at that time out of the cities, 26,000 men that drew sword beside the inhabitants of Gibeah, which were numbered 700 chosen men among all this people. There were 700 chosen men left-handed. Everyone could sling stones at a hair's breadth and not miss. So Joab, it seems to be a left-handed man. And of course, he would have his sword in his left hand, grabbing the beard with his right. So Joab employs the very same tactic that Ehud used to assassinate King Eglon, the wicked king of the Moabites. And we read this in chapter 3 of Judges, verse 21 and 22. And Ehud put forth his left hand and took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly and the haft also went in after the blade and the fat closed upon the blade so that he could not draw the dagger out of his belly and the dirt came out. So the man was so fat, so disgusting that when Ehud thrust in the knife, it closed in around the, the, the handle of the blade and his guts came out. Note the similarities between these accounts. Number one, both assassinations were successful as a result of deception. Number two, both assassinations were successful because of misdirection. Number three, both assassinations were successful as a result of the outward show of kindness. Remember, Joab seemed concerned for Amasa. Are you in health, my brother? Ehud wanted to bless Eglon with a secret message of blessing. I have a secret I have a secret to tell you, my king. You have to get everybody out of the room because this is very important. Only a king should see this. Both feigned a kindness. Number four, both assassinations used the right hand to bless and the left hand to destroy. Number five, both assassinations resulted in the death of the victim. Number six, both assassinations resulted in their entire bowels falling to the earth. Both assassinations, number seven, succeeded by the use of the sword. Number eight, both assassinations were so well delivered that there was no need to strike a second time. Make sure when you deliver the word of God that there's no need to strike a second time, that it is cutting, piercing, hot, bringing men and nations to their knees. Number nine, in each case, the scripture gives a specific detail about the assassination. In the case of Eglon, he was so fat that the blade of the dagger could not be pulled out, and to be fat in scripture is to be prideful. And so, by Ehud's sword, Eglon is humbled, and Israel is delivered. In the case of Amasa, the scripture says that the sword entered him under the fifth rib. And since the heart, physiologically speaking, and since the heart is directly under the fifth rib, this would ensure a lethal outcome. No need to strike a second time. Joab knew exactly where to put that sword. Now there are only four times in scripture where this term is used, the term under the fifth rib, which designates the kill zone. The first is where Abner kills Joab's brother Asiel. In 2 Samuel 2.23 we read this, Howbeit he refused to turn aside. Wherefore Abner, with the hinder end of the spear, smote him under the fifth rib, that the spear came out behind him, and he fell down there and died in the same place. The second instance where this detail is given is where 
Joab takes revenge upon Abner. In 2 Samuel 3.27, we read this. And when Abner was returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him quietly. Note the deception. Come, my friend Abner. Come, since you're going to be the new war chief. That's what he believed David was going to do. Come and let us speak in private as if I have some message of interest that you might be interested in. And smote him there under the fifth rib that he died for the blood of Asael, his brother. So, again, Joab gets the advantage through deceit. The third time this detail is given is in 2 Samuel 4, when Rechab and Banna assassinate Ishbosheth. We read this in 2 Samuel 4, verse 5 and following. And the sons of Rimmon, the Berothite, and Rechab and Banna went and came about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth who lay on a bed at noon, and they came thither into the midst of the house as though they would have fetched wheat, and they smote him under the fifth rib. Notice again the deception. We're just bringing some wheat here, and the kill zone, the fifth rib. And Rechab and Banna, his brother, escaped. For when they came into the house, he lay on his bed in his bedchamber, and they smote him and slew him and beheaded him and took his head and got them away through the plain all night. Again, the strategy of deception. Finally, in 2 Samuel chapter 20, where Joab uses deception to kill his enemy, his enemy Amasa. All in all, these are individual and specific cases where the sword is thrust into the side of an individual precisely under the fifth rib. In each case, we must conclude then that these killings were assassinations executed to gain a political or a military position. Firstly, Ehud wanted to gain a military advantage over the Moabites. Number two, Abner wanted to gain a military advantage in David's army, so when he was threatened, he defended himself. Number three and four, Job two wanted to secure his place in David's army, first by killing Abner and now Amasa. And of course, we have... All of these done through deception. And then, of course, Rechab and Benna, they wanted to ensure a political victory, maybe even a military place in David's kingdom by killing Ishbosheth, killing him and stabbing him under the fifth rib. Now, you can't but connect these killings to when the soldiers thrust their sword into the side of the Lord Jesus Christ while he hung on the cross. Because we read very cryptically, very carefully, very precisely that the scriptures are very clear that the result of the sword going into the Lord Jesus' side resulted in the water and the blood coming forth, indicating, physiologically indicating, that he had been pierced in his heart, which was under the fifth rib. Medically, Jesus was suffering from water being gathered around both the heart and the lungs, which is why water and blood shot forth when it was pierced all under the fifth rib. And so when God records the fact that these assassinations were death sentences, remember it said, and they died there, and they died, and he was dead, and his bells came out, he died there. We can know that when Jesus was pierced in his side, he actually died right there and then, which is a critical component to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the hope of eternal life. He had to die so that we know his resurrection was not a forgery. But there's another aspect to this. All these assassinations were done by men seeking to gain political and military hegemony, in other words, sovereignty, 
a sovereignty over their enemy. When the Romans pierced the Lord under the fifth rib, they were symbolically seeking for, for a position or power to be over God. This was just another way for the Roman state to be as God. And once Amaziah was slain, Joab and Abishai took the army and pursued after the rebel Sheba. It was for a military and a political purpose. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, verse 10, pursued after Sheba, the son of Bichri. Now once once Amasa is slain, Joab gets the nomination by one of his men so that he might once again secure his position as war chief. And we see this in chapter 20, verse 11 of Second Samuel. And one of Joab's men stood by him and said, He that favoreth Joab, and he that is for David, let him go after Joab. So now Joab, through this assassination, is reestablished as David's war chief. According to verse 12, Amasa's assassination seemed, at least initially, to shock the men of Judah. But once he was removed out of the way, Joab leads the army to continue the pursuit after Sheba. We see this in verse 13. And when he was removed out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue after Sheba, the son of Bichri. Now the result of Joab's treachery apparently was a motivational tool for the rebellious tribes of Israel to forsake Sheba and follow Joab and the house of David. Having shown his treachery and his commitment to the house of David, Joab goes through the tribes and gathers them together and then pursues after Sheba. And they all went through the tribes of Israel unto Abel and to Beth, Makkah, and all the Berites, and they were gathered together and went also after him. So Joab's intention was to do whatever it took to capture and kill Sheba, even if it meant that every city and every citizen that would harbor him had to be killed. And he was ready to do that. To quell the rebellion of Sheba, Joab was ready to do whatever it took. This is a man of commitment to the kingdom of God. Now, whatever you think about Joab, here's a man of conviction. He is willing to do anything for the kingdom of God. Joab's wrathful policy is what is known as the scorched earth tactic. Kill everyone. Once Joab and the army arrive at the city, they come up to the city wall, they begin to breach it in order to capture and execute Sheba, but if they needed to destroy the city, they would have done that. And those inhabitants of the city knew that, especially this one woman. This woman cries out for them to stop. Knowing Joab's wrath and Joab's intention to destroy the city, she calls out to stop. The word bank refers to the battling siege tower that they were going to use to either go over the city wall or break through the city wall or both. Note how this woman is identified in scripture as a wise woman, a woman who's crafty. And so calling out to Job, she appeals to Joab for him to ask counsel. And it's kind of strange what she's actually saying. She's asking him to ask counsel at Abel. Now, initially you might think, well, well, is that someone's name? Perhaps Job at first might have thought this is referring to a man who founded the city and then named the city after him. Maybe the city was named Abel. Adam Clark tries to make sense of this request because this man might have been known for his wisdom. Job might have even heard of him, which is why he was willing to listen to the counsel of Abel. 
Clark says, this seems to be a proverb, but from what it originated, we know not, nor can we exactly say what it means. Much must be supplied to bring it to speak sense. Abel was probably framed for the wisdom of its inhabitants, not a literal person, and parties who had disputes appealed to their judgment, which appears to have been in such high reputation as to be final and consent of all parties. To this, the wise woman refers. In other words, the city was known for its godly counsel. And it intimates to Joab that he should have proceeded in this way before he began to storm the city and to destroy the peaceable inhabitants. In other words, she's saying, look, you need to first ask counsel from the city, Abel, the inhabitants of Abel. So this woman is referring to the city. She wants him to consider the counsel of the entire inhabitants of the city because they were noted for their good counsel. And since the city was the city of Abel, this seems more probable than the name of just an individual man. And this is why she then proceeds to tell Joab that the inhabitants of the city are a peace-loving people who are committed to David, this was important, committed to David and the honor of his kingdom. And we read this in verse 19. I am one of them, one of the counselors, a wise woman, that are peaceable and faithful in Israel. Thou seekest to destroy a city and a mother in Israel. Why wilt thou swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? This is a great argument that this woman is giving. Note how she identifies with the city by actually calling the city a peaceable city. Even saying that she is one of those who are peaceable. As if she may be even personifying the city using herself. Now the Hebrew here in verse 19 is to be read literally as, I am a peaceable city. I am representing the city and this city is a peaceable city. It is as if she is saying, I am for peace as well as the entire city. And we, as an entire network of people in this city, want no contention of any kind. I and this city are faithful. I and this city adhere to David. We neither seek nor shall sanction any rebellion or any anarchy against the King David, whom we are committed to in the land. That's what she's saying. Don't destroy us. We are faithful folk. She then challenges Joab. Why then, if we are this faithful city, why then are you proceeding in such a violent manner? Why are you coming against us with swords and staves? Now, to be a mother in Israel or a mother city is to imply that it has been a nourishment within its own existence as a mother that nourishes her own babies within her own body. And that's basically what she's saying. She says, we are, we are some of the very important components within the nation. There's no reason for Joab to bring violence upon a mother city of Israel, and that's what she's calling it, and its inhabitants. So obviously, this moves Joab. So we know that he's not the monster that he could be. And this moves Joab to leave off the city's destruction. However, even though he says, far be it from me, that I should swallow up or destroy such a faithful city. The argument of the woman is enough to ward up the city's destruction, but that does not solve Joab's problem. Sheba is still hiding in the city, and he needs to be dealt with. And so Joab explains, 
The matter is not so, but a man of Mount Ephraim, Sheba, the son of Bichri, by name, hath lifted up his hand against the king, even against David. So Joab tells the woman that this man is being harbored in her beloved city. He's, he's being harbored by the mother city of Israel. But he's a rebel. He's against David. He needs to be executed for his treason. And note what he says. Very clear, very succinct. Deliver him to us. Deliver him only. And I will depart from the city. Now consider the woman, what she says. Not only will she deliver the man Sheba, she will have him executed within the city walls herself. And the woman said unto Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to thee over the wall. A couple of things to be examined here. She understands that her loyalty will have to be validated. You can say whatever you want. Oh yeah, yeah, we'll deliver him. Yeah, okay, don't destroy us. And then maybe he's escaping. She says, we are going to kill him ourselves. We're going to show you that what we say is what we believe. Because it was not enough that she tells Joab that she will deliver the man or that she was a peaceable city and loyal to David. She had to show it. And once again, we cannot just say we're Christians. We cannot just say that we love Jesus. We cannot just say that, yeah, we love the law. We have to validate it. We have to validate it by our actions. We have to validate it by our lives. Otherwise, we're hypocrites, we're liars. And if she did not validate our profession, Joab would have scorched the earth and destroyed that entire city. So she needed to show that she was for real. That's a lesson for us. You must demonstrate your Christianity because words are only words. Evidence must be forthcoming and it must be continuous. Number two, being peaceful while at the same time exacting justice upon the wicked is not incompatible with biblical Christianity. Whenever we find wickedness, wherever and whenever we find wickedness, within the city of God, whether it's in the church or in the community, we must deliver up the rebel to the justice of God. In today's modern Christendom, when wickedness is found within the congregation of the church, it's done through excommunication. We want the head of the heretic. We cannot allow wickedness to continue. When it is found within the realm of the community, Christians must first pledge their allegiance to Christ and then follow up by exposing the evil so that it no longer has any power or authority over the people. We want the head of those heretics. And you know, we, in our America, and it just makes me want to vomit, in the Christian church, we talk about the warfare. The warfare, Christian warfare. While we're sitting in our plush little homes, behind our walls, watching YouTube, going on Google. This is a battle. And if we don't take it seriously, we'll be swallowed up by that battle. We need to be very, very, very convicted over what truth is and what it is not. This brings us to the issue of the severed head. The head always symbolizes authority. If you are a Christian, Christ is your authority. He is your head. By removing Sheba's head, the city was removing any authoritative power of the man which might have threatened the city in the future and then in the future perhaps the entirety of the kingdom. 
The way modern Christendom removes the headship authority of wicked secular rulers is to expose them and then replace them with godly leaders. The reason why the faithful churches remain small and the apostate churches, the happy clappy churches remain large is because no one in the happy clappy churches are challenged to take the battle to the enemy. But mark my words, if Christianity does not find its its strength, it will be stripped of its strength. And we will go into exile as the Babylonians brought Israel into exile when they come to your door to tell you either denounce Christ or be incarcerated. And then what are we going to do? Now, of course, challenging the powers that be is not as easy as it sounds. We must have the support of others in the community who are loyal to Christ, like this woman of Abel, who had pledged her loyalty to David. Once the woman's promise was validated and Sheba was dead, then Joab signals victory, leaves the city in peace, and returns to Jerusalem. You know, it's not only the, the guy who goes first against the wicked. It's the guy who goes second. If you're going first... People will watch to see whether or not you're going to be victorious or productive. But when they see the second guy go, they say, wait a minute, someone is agreeing. I'm going to go too. It's always that second guy. Not the one who leads, but the one who follows. Because that becomes the support of those who are going first. Sheba had to die His head had to be taken for there to have David declare victory. And so once the head is thrown over the city wall, the authority of Sheba is destroyed, Joab blows the trumpet of victory and conquest, and they retire from the city, every man to his tent. Joab then returns to Jerusalem unto the king. Now, of course, Joab had achieved his goal through violence. He wanted to be reinstated as war chief, and he was. He wanted to control the army. He wanted total control over the army of Israel, and he was successful. David was now in a bit of a a bind since Joab was a hero. This obligated him to keep him on as war chief despite his treachery against Amasa. If David had dealt with Joab for his murders initially, he might have signaled another civil disturbance. And so David left well enough alone and Joab is reestablished. Everything seemingly was now being reconstructed. Chaos was now averted. Uh, The military was pretty much stabilized under Joab. The economy was stabilized under Adoram, who was the chief receiver of taxes. This is why you have that list at the end of the chapter, because it's showing the reconstruction of the kingdom. Jehoshaphat was the recorder of public events. He was the historian so that everything would be written down very accurately. Shiva, not Shiva, but Shiva was the king's personal secretary. The religious observances were also stabilized under the priests Zadok and Abathar. It seemed that David also employed a personal chaplain by choosing Ira. Now in the past, David had Gad and later Josiah as his personal chaplain and But now he has Ira. So by these men in their offices that are being ordained to their offices, everything seemed to be restored. Kingdom was at peace. 
All seemed to be well, at least as well as it could be. But there was still a frowning providence which lay ahead that David and all of Israel had to contend with. God was not finished with David, nor was he finished with Israel. We will discover that next when we return to our exposition on the second book of Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us, unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.